This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are almost heretical. We need somebody to be able to hold power to fix what is broken, and everything is broken because everybody wants to be in power. And those two threads get wrapped around each other that are the backdrop for the entire biblical story and are the logic behind almost every single thing that Jesus does and says. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Yeah, so we really think theology matters, and that's why we're doing this podcast. And I think those last two episodes that we just did, if you guys haven't heard them, go back and listen to them. It's kind of, I think it's kind of integral to the whole, all of what we're doing. Yeah, to why we're here. Yeah, exactly. Because I think... And this was my fear, that if you just listen to our deep dive into theology, you're going to feel like we're just nerds that want to talk about the Bible. And we are nerds, and we do want to talk about the Bible. But we really believe that there's a, there's a, there's a purpose behind this. And, and the purpose is that theology really does matter. And I hope that those last two episodes showed that. Yeah, so we're going to try to keep finding a, a blend of doing some theological homework and critiquing some of the ways of thinking and ways of interpreting Christianity that have been predominant in evangelicalism. And we want to keep telling stories and connecting with one another and and wrestling with all the real-life ramifications of how these ideas end up playing out in real people's real lives. And a topic that we are most passionate about is power. One of the things that comes up in most of the stories we hear and in our own stories and we've seen through and through in evangelicalism, is a rampant issue of power in the church. So we're going to jump back into the Bible and look at how this story has a common theme throughout the whole thing. And there's lots of different stories, lots of different writers, but there's this one common theme throughout. And so we're starting this series, and it's called The Bible is a Story About Power. And my job over the next few episodes is to convince you that that's true. Let's go. Okay, Nate, so we started looking back into some of the earlier chapters of Genesis and specifically trying to reevaluate the story of the fall and made the case that it's actually not just one story. It's a whole collection of stories that runs through Genesis 3 to Genesis 11. So do you remember what that was? Yeah. So, okay, the gist of it is essentially that there's more there in the fall than we've believed um and so you have to look at I, the way i like to start is like why is there a snake in the garden and that was actually what one of our episodes was called so you can go back and check it out but why is there a snake in the garden and it's just assumed that we know why the snake is there and there's other other stories that lead us to believe that this snake is a divine being and there was some sort of a fall of divine beings um before the fall of humans in genesis 3 and we're just supposed to know that, and that continues on. And this is a theme that a lot of the, a lot of the um, Old Testament writers, just kind of reference and assume we know. And it leads all the way to Genesis six, where we have these Nephilim 
these giants. Then we have gods or the divine beings coming down and having sex with these giants. And then it's then it's right into the story of the flood. But it says there, the key verse there, is that it says that these beings were around before and after this flood. And we continue on all the way to the Tower of Babel, where God seems to be apportioning these divine beings out to the nations to be their gods. Um, and God seems to be totally cool with that. So yeah, this is a theme that, and then it's also picked up in the New Testament and we'll get to that as well. But I don't know, was that decent or not? Yeah, totally. And part of what we covered was, so the flood was a response to the world that God had created and ordered with mankind to be its rulers had fallen into essentially this cosmic war. And part of that war, a central piece of it, what we looked at, the justification for the flood story, was that according to the biblical writers, the way these divine beings sought to seize power from humans that were entrusted to ruling the world was to essentially take over and corrupt their bloodline through essentially sexual war crime. And so what you have is these semi-divine offspring, which are the result of some sort of illicit sexual union between these divine rebel beings and human women. And that the justification for the flood was in large part to wipe out those beings. And then you have this clear note, as you mentioned, that that didn't happen. And then we got into an episode where we pointed out that the justification and the logic behind the conquest of Canaan was in large part to wipe out these divine beings. But what I want to do is go back in the same grouping of texts, this whole collection of especially Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, and take two separate strings and trace two separate threads, and then we're going to tie those threads together, and then we're going to carry those forward through the rest of the Bible. Okay, so we're starting in Genesis 3. Well, where did we say that the last piece of the fall was? What was the last chapter in the story of the fall? Okay, I think it was um, Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. Right, which was, according to John Piper, was God getting mad at skyscrapers. Right. Be careful, Dubai. <laughs> which, can I just say, Dubai is really cool. Bye-bye, bye, Dubai. screensaver. Farewell, John. Be- Farewell, Rob Bell. Bye-bye, Dubai. Bye-bye, <laughs> <laughs> Dubai. <laughs> So, remember one of the, the weirdest pieces for our, coming from our perspective in evangelicalism, was the idea of thinking about the Tower of Babel as actually an act of God giving up on mankind. The flood was plan B, and his action at the Tower of Babel was plan C, which a couple verses in Deuteronomy corroborate with Genesis 11 to say that what actually happened was that God decided to abandon essentially all of mankind and to delegate the nations of the world to be ruled over by the other divine beings. Wait, pause. I know a lot of people that would have problems with you saying something was God's plan B. God doesn't have plan Bs, Tim. He's got plan B and plan C and a couple more. No, but seriously, like a lot of people would have problems with that. Why? Uh, I'm just thinking because that, so when we think of God being powerful, that means he doesn't mess up. 
and he's got this thing prepared from like the beginning of everything and this was the way it was supposed to be so if you say it has a plan b that means he tried something that wasn't that didn't work meaning he was wrong or i think actually what you see throughout genesis 1 through 11 and this is probably a a bigger conversation for another time, but what you see is that God continually constrains himself. So in creating free will beings, he constrains himself to deal with the consequences of those beings. After the flood, which we're about to get to, God promises to Noah and Noah's family and all of creation that he will never again, no matter how bad humanity gets, essentially even if it gets to as bad as it just was, Never again will he repeat the flood judgment, meaning he's now constraining himself to essentially allow humanity to primarily reap its own consequences because he just limited himself by making a promise that he will no longer wipe out all of life. After that, he further constrains himself by delegating his own godship, essentially, out to other divine beings and says he will be the god, essentially the regional tribal deity of one tiny people group that doesn't even exist yet through Abraham and Sarah. So any, any conception of God that doesn't leave space for a god with constraints essentially is an idea of God that isn't free to do the things that the biblical writers are clearly attesting to God doing in the very first chapters of the Bible. Okay. All right. We'll, uh, we'll dive into that some other time, I guess. Table it. But, okay, back to what we're talking about. So, Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, God abandons the nations, and what for? Like, why did he do it or what happened? I mean... Yeah. So, I mean, just think. You've been a Christian a long time. You know your theology. How can you make sense of that? Um, what I always thought was they got too powerful and so he had to spread them up. The Oh, the people got too powerful. The people. Yeah, gotcha. So, that happens in Genesis 11, right? We looked at, a, at two verses from Deuteronomy that refer back to the same Tower of Babel event. But what happens next in the book of Genesis? He chooses Abraham. To be what? To be the people, the person who, through his line and through his family, is going to bless the nations. So, remember, when we look at the first couple chapters of Genesis, and there's so much there we could dive into, but one of the things we established is that what it meant for God to create Adam and Eve and task them with filling and subduing the earth meant that God had assigned mankind as being in charge of ruling the earth. And then, if you look at it, actually, after the flood story, when essentially most of the earth is wiped out, and what you have is Noah and his family and their animals as the survivors, the same thing gets told to Noah that was told to Adam and Eve, go fill and subdue the earth. So Adam and Eve were the first kings and queens of earth. That all gets messed up. God hits the reset button. And Noah and his family, his children specifically, and their wives, become the next royal figures to rule the earth. And that goes awry, and we'll get into that in a second. And so what you have happening 
in the combination of the Tower of Babel event and God revealing himself and choosing Abraham and Sarah, he's now just placed Abraham and Sarah into the same role that Noah had filled on behalf of Adam and Eve. And specifically, there's a reason why the text mentions, it's, it's literary genius really, that Abraham was incredibly old, meaning he was too old to do any sort of agricultural work, which is exactly what, remember, the man's role, Adam's role was. And Sarah was barren. She couldn't have any kids. Those are the two jobs that humanity collectively is tasked to do in ruling the world. And so specifically, and there's some really beautiful stuff here, God has decided to start over with humanity, not by wiping them all out again, like he did with the flood, because he promised after the flood he would never do that again. He constrained himself to work within humanity with humans. And so he does that by picking, essentially, some humans out of all the other nations in the world to start for himself his own nation and to make a very strategic point from the very beginning of the story and this people's identity. He picks the last people you would ever pick to be the kings and queens in charge of leading a great world nation, of ruling the earth, especially if your task is to fill it and subdue it, an old barren couple. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was kind of the aha moment I had in I don't even remember what episode it was where I realized that the way that these divine beings were trying to get into the world and the warfare they were trying to do was through basically procreation and entering in through the bloodline and that Eve was and Adam were going to basically have to make a bunch of people to try to wait how does I make that connection again it's in the curses remember the curses in Genesis 3 was that right. Adam's going to have a hard time working in the fields and Eve's going to have a hard time making babies because in the literary motif that's what the two figures represent. They need a lot of people in order to work the fields. They would have to make babies to make their own help because they're no longer working with the partnership of the divine beings. And without that partnership, it's going to be a heck of a lot of work to garden. Okay, so now he's starting over, same sort of imagery, except he chooses the last people you would choose if the whole goal was to make babies and work fields. Hey Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) Yeah, and put that little bit in your your pocket right now of of the fact that he chose intentionally not to adopt one of the world's empires and make them his his people. 
but he chose a people that didn't exist rather than adopting the big powerful empire. He actually decided to birth a people that didn't exist yet and to make through essentially miraculous procreation through a couple that was too old to have any kids and had yet been able to have any children to miraculously provide offspring. And so he makes that famous promise to Abraham, look up at the stars in the sky and I'll make your family, your offspring as plentiful as the stars in the sky. And that family will become a great nation, which will lead to the blessing of every nation in the world. And again, royal motifs mixed all throughout this. So essentially what you see is Adam and Eve represent figures that God was tasking with ruling the world, and that falls apart. Noah's given their job, and that falls apart. And now God walks away from all the other humans on the earth and starts a third time to task a people with ruling the earth. But what he's doing is he's choosing a small subset within the broader society to essentially form a countercultural minority community within that larger subset. And not only does he not choose the big bad empire, it starts by saying, hey, believe me, trust me, you're going to have a bunch of kids. They'll eventually reproduce and start to fill the land, as is your calling. But by the way, they'll spend 400 years as slaves in a foreign land, which ends up being Egypt, the great empire. Okay, I'm tracking. So how is this then about power? So the reason I bring all this up is to point out that the entire logic behind Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, which becomes Israel, and the entire community, which is at the center of the biblical story of God's people, his inheritance, Israel, that rooted in their identity is that Adam and Eve calling of ruling the world. What this community, what this people is to be for is not just to be some religious sect out in the desert that stays righteous and pure. Their entire purpose is to become the kind of countercultural community that would one day end up bringing peace throughout the whole world through a form of using power to rule. And so what you see building throughout the Old Testament is essentially this story about whether or not Israel's actually fulfilling that calling and how they they are or are not fulfilling that calling. It reaches a point with David, the king, who is essentially the high point in Israel's history, who is the guy who didn't want any power. He was the little brother, wasn't seeking to be king, but is made king over the big, tall, powerful Saul. And it does seem like that happens all the time in the Bible. It's always, we always talked about it as like God picking the the lowest and the least or whatever, but it's specifically the ones that aren't powerful, if you think of it another way. Right, and they're actually contrasted against each other. So the Bible stories don't share very many details, especially not physical details about what characters look like. And yet it's specifically stated that Saul was tall, just like those giant warrior evil villains that the conquest was supposed to be wiping out. And David had to help wipe out. And David was just a little puny runt, the bottom of the 
food chain Wasn't in his own well family. Built, he was supposedly handsome. Okay, yes. is that what well built means? That's <laughs> <laughs> Nate's translation. <laughs> Doesn't it say well built? Somebody write us in, write in or something. There's a translation that says he was well built. <laughs> I know it. Okay, so fast forward. Essentially, what you have is this little bit of a high point with David, but it's not so much a high point as it becomes a symbol or a paradigm, which is that if Israel is meant to be the people, the nation, the community that is good and just and righteous enough for God to trust them to actually rule the world in justice, then they're going to have to have a leader within that community who is good and just and righteous enough to lead them. So you end up having this sort of thing where within the world is Israel as a small countercultural remnant minority. And then within Israel, you have need for one leader to be a small remnant countercultural force for good within that own community. And that is one of the key seeds of messianism, which ends up getting woven throughout the entire Old Testament in a hundreds of really fascinating ways that this idea is building and building and building throughout Israel's history and especially throughout the Old Testament scriptures that the entire idea of God being able to use Israel to become a blessing to the nations is actually all contingent on there being at least one person who can be that righteous leader, that that person who is just and merciful and compassionate enough to actually be handed the keys to the kingdom and not use it to become the next empire. But I thought that Israel didn't need a king. They weren't supposed to have a king. And then they like begged God for a king like the other nations. So it makes it seem like plan A, God's plan A, at least plan A in plan C, was that they didn't actually need a king. But you're saying that was that's integral. No, I think the idea of a king and the idea of the story in First Samuel is that what it's actually it's it's an integral story in this overall picture is there was never an issue with leaders right i mean think about it from the get-go you have singular representation in the form of an adam or a noah or an abraham but then the big one is moses right and you get to he's the liberator leader who essentially god uses to single-handedly lead israel in the Exodus out, out of Egypt. And Moses for a long time is the archetypal leader figure who knows God is faithful to God and essentially intercedes between God and the people. When you get to first Samuel and the people are crying out for a King, the point is specifically that they are trying to simply look at the nations around them, especially the biggest, baddest empires around them and mimic the behavior of those nations. So they look around them and say, hey, Babylon's got a king. Egypt's got Pharaoh. All the nations that are beating us up all the time, who have more money than us and more power, let's just do the same things they do. So the story at its essence is, and God gives a warning, you're going to reap what you sow. Your own king is going to enslave you just like you were enslaved before. The whole story is about Israel 
is supposed to become the kind of people that can lead the Egypts and Babylons and Roman empires of the world into peace and justice and righteousness. And instead, they're spending all their time just trying to become the next Roman empire or the next Egypt Mm -hmm. or the next Babylon. But as a sidebar, that story is a good example of some of the more complicated ways that the scriptures are working. You can go back and forth on trying to understand these passages about Israel getting a king and the Saul and David narratives and try to come up with a clean ethic or a clean (laughs) application from those texts. It's just really hard to do. It's essentially giving you some very complicated stories with complicated figures. I mean, was David good or bad? (laughs) Mull on that one for a while. It is, it's teaching some really rich wisdom, some really valuable lessons. And more importantly, I would say it's carrying some really central motifs through to the next parts of the story. But we rarely read those texts that way. We're trying to figure out what does this text have to say to me and how do I apply this to my life and that sort of thing. It's a self-infliction There's enmity, there's fiction And your words But are you, so are you tracking so far in terms of this progression of the purpose of Israel, their calling, and, and how we're going to try to connect that with power? Yeah, essentially they need to be the people that are able to have power, wield power, um, because they're going to be the ones that lead the nations to peace and justice and righteousness. And so they need to be able to have that power and not use it like the nations of the world are using it. Totally. And so, so built in is, is an idea fraught with tension, which is that what we're talking about actually is power and lots of power, meaning the, the basic idea, starting with Adam and Eve, is that those two figures would have a whole bunch of power. And then it gets down to Israel eventually, and that people built into their identity, their destiny, is to have immense power. The idea really is that they would be ruling the world. The, the end game of this story is that this people would be in power and in great power, not just the leading nation in the world, but essentially some sort of, you know, cosmic theocracy that is actually working with God to rule over the rest of creation. But at every point connected to that idea is the idea that that rulership is completely dependent on justice and righteousness, that the only one God will trust to actually rule is the one who will only use that rule to bless and will not use that rule to curse. That they will only use their power for good. And therefore, having that person or that people group have ultimate power is actually ultimately good for every single person. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm tracking. I'm with you on that one. So. so that's part one. That's thread number one. So let's actually back all the way back up and go back to Noah and the flood. So... I say all that, I just want you to hold in your head that for those that aren't familiar, the whole basis, the logic behind the idea of 
of God's response to this collective fall, which is to create for himself his own nation, the logic behind that is to form that nation into the kind of people that could rule the world, the kind of people that could have a lot of power. Okay, so hold that in your pocket. Let's go back to Noah and the flood story. So what we already looked at is Genesis 6, 1 through 5. So the first few verses are those weird verses about the divine beings coming down, having sex with the daughters of men. And I've speculated, but made the case that I think it makes logical sense that that act is probably not to be interpreted as consensual sex, but is there are elements of injustice or essentially like sexual war crimes implied in that story. And that fits in with the logic of why the divine beings were rebelling against mankind in the first place. But I'll give another piece of evidence for that. And what we'll see is this actually weaves this other thread that kind of gets held in tension with this idea of Israel becoming a people to have great power. Okay, so what you have... Genesis 6, 1 through 4, this weird stuff happens, divine beings, women, and that prompts God to do what I've been calling plan B is this flood, this kind of reset button. And then the flood ends, Noah and his family end up on dry land a year later, you have this promise to never do another flood again, and then the very next story is... Nope. Wait, hold on. What else what else do you know about Noah? Oh, that part. Yeah. Okay, so uh Nate, if I, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So, what stories or events do you know of Noah being involved in? The flood? Um building the ark. And then there's that weird thing with the tent, and I don't really know how to or what. I don't really know actually what happened. Did you ever, like, did you speculate or did people around you, like? Um, yeah, I mean, this is literally off the top of my head, but wasn't it like you're not supposed to, like, see someone see someone naked and they, like, exposed their father or something like that? Yeah. Was there, like, a moral takeaway in middle school? Like, you're supposed to, like, <laughs> not change in the locker room or something? <laughs> I never, I never <laughs> I never heard that one. I I just thought of it like, I thought it, I always thought it was like the, you know, that's like on, honor in the Bible basically, and that was honor, that or that was dishonorable, you know, in that culture in that time or whatever, and so you just didn't. I mean, not that it's honorable now. Or something. <laughs> I guess it would be pretty dishonorable now too. But I I just that's what I thought. I don't know. I'm guessing there's. I gotta else. say, I'm kind of bummed that you don't have a single homeschool story I about don't, the sin of Ham and Noah in the tent. I don't. I. Would you call yourself a homeschool survivor? Uh, no, I didn't ever see it that. I never saw it that way. I I was exposed to some pretty extreme homeschooling. We weren't that. We weren't that weird. We were the. We were the like the normal homeschoolers. And there's a lot of weird. There's a lot of weird stuff out there that made me not want to. I still don't have that. I was homeschooled on my Facebook page because. <laughs> I just don't want to, I, people go on then like high school, homeschool. And I just, I can't do it. I'm sorry. I can't do it. I, I didn't know you even put the, I didn't know Facebook even asked for that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, let's do a little, little Bible. As, as opposed to what we've been doing. <laughs> Bad things happen. 
involving divine beings having sex with women. And as I made the case, that was an act of political, essentially power grab, to try to take over rulership of the earth from humanity. The response is a flood, and then the flood ends, and you have the very next story, a little vignette. And here's a vignette in Genesis 9, starting in 18. Nate, you want to read this one? Okay. Yeah, so Genesis 9, 18. Okay. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Okay, so if I were to put you on the spot again, what's your best guess at what the heck is happening? I mean, it's it's kind of what I said earlier, basically, that you it's dishonorable to see the nakedness of your father, and that was a big thing in that culture. I mean, it's it's not cool now or whatever, but like it was must have been a big you know thing at the time in that culture, and uh, like the patriarchy, that kind of I don't know, I don't know. And so that's, yeah, dishonorable. So they, they were trying to do the right thing and cover him up without seeing him. And yeah, I don't understand the whole like blessings and curses and live in his tent and all that kind of stuff. But that's, yeah, that's I think I that's about as good as I could come up with. Um, but that's not it at all. Uh, but I didn't find this. I'm just reading other smarter people than me and want to pass their stuff along. And I've, I've mentioned him before. Michael Heiser is one of my favorite scholars who, especially on the divine supernatural worldview of the Old Testament, all the stuff that we touched on in the first handful episodes of the podcast, tremendously indebted to him. And he's got a really good uh, podcast for extra credit Bible nerds. It's called The Naked Bible Podcast. And I actually came across this idea in this article, which I'm about to reference, uh, through an episode he did called The Sin of Ham. And in that episode, he essentially uh, took a a piece of recent scholarship, uh, an article, and basically just walked through it. And I've got that article here. They basically make a pretty watertight case that I I don't think there's any way to challenge it for a view that I'd never even thought to imagine. The article's called Noah's Nakedness and the Curse on Canaan, Genesis 9, 20 through 27, and it's by John Bergsma and Scott Hahn. So here's the idea. What you just voiced, Nate, is basically one of the predominant views. Scholars will call it voyeurism. Essentially, what happened is Noah got drunk, got naked, and somehow the kids 
saw him naked and that was embarrassing. Oh, I got to add to it. The other one was, of course, don't get drunk. That's where we should put the sound. <laughs> so we recorded this really cool sound of Tim opening his beer and we don't really know where to put it. So uh, we're going to play that right now. It just sounds like it could be a commercial or something. Okay, so one predominant view is essentially that this is talking about Noah getting naked and the kids going and see him. And so under that view, basically the issue is, is Noah gets drunk and makes fool out of himself and embarrasses himself. But the view's got a lot of holes, especially like why the heck does Canaan get cursed as a result of this event? So another predominant view is essentially that there's some sort of sexual encounter here that actually happens between Ham and Noah. Either paternal incest or some other sort of sexual malfeasance. And uh, and that essentially something went down between the two of them. If you guys want to see more details on the argument here, I really recommend reading this, this article by Bergsma and Hahn. They make the case, and I'll quote them here, for in favor of the view that this is incest. This is essentially forced sexual encounter on behalf of Ham. And I'll read a quote here. By humiliating his father, Ham hoped to usurp his father's authority and displace his older brothers in the familial hierarchy. A scholar, Nissanen, notes that the story does not speak of Ham's homosexual orientation, but his hunger for power. This explains why Ham promptly informed his brothers of what he had done. So they quote a couple other scholars, and they essentially agree with an argument that what this story is getting at is actually a, a familial political, it's a power play, where what Ham is trying to do is essentially humiliate his father so that he takes over the family line. So think about it. These are the only, according to the narrative, these are the only humans left on the planet who have just been tasked with, again, the role of ruling the earth. It's Noah and his family. He has three sons. And according to this view, one of them, essentially what he's trying to do is attack his dad and take over the family line. But here's where this article takes a turn, and this is the, the argument that I just think is, is watertight. You can't argue it. And they say, essentially, I'll quote them here, in almost every instance, these arguments for paternal incest are better suited to argue for maternal incest. Think about that. So the, the best view in these guys' minds before this article was that the event here is incest. It's essentially forced sexual encounter for the sake of humiliating and usurping Noah. But then they go on to make the case that that's actually, in every way, better interpreted as being an event of maternal incest, meaning Ham actually raped his mom, Noah's wife. Here's why they say that. They take this phrase, to see the father's nakedness. And they look at every other place that that phrase, that idiom, is used in the scriptures. And it never once refers to homosexual practice. It always refers to some sort of heterosexual encounter. And specifically, there's evidence within the Bible itself that this phrase, father's nakedness, is actually an idiom referring to 
your mother. So actually look at Leviticus 18, 7 through 8. It says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is the nakedness of your father. You see that there? The idiom, the nakedness of your father is your mother, and the nakedness of your father's wife is your father. And this gets repeated a couple times. I'll quote them again. The same logic is at work in Deuteronomy 23.1 and 27.20, which describe intercourse with one's father's wife as uncovering the father's skirt. And one further piece of evidence is that the drinking, the reference to Noah growing a vineyard and drinking, isn't a moral lesson on the woes of getting drunk. It's a literary motif. Drinking and sex were commonly almost entirely connected in biblical story. So I'll quote them again. If we take full account of the nuance of the biblical idiom, the statement that Ham saw his father's nakedness implies relations with Noah's wife, presumably Ham's mother. This is supported by the fact that the imagery of the vineyard and wine is associated only with heterosexual intercourse in the Bible, whether in the story of Lot and his daughters the David-Uriah-Bathsheba affair, or the Song of Songs. It is salutary to recall that in Genesis 9, 1-17, the pericope immediately preceding the narrative under discussion, Noah and his sons are twice given the command to be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 9, 19, from these the whole earth was peopled, suggests that the sons fulfilled this command, and 9, 18, and 22 stress Ham's role as progenitor of Canaan. It is not unreasonable, therefore, to interpret Noah's and Ham's actions in 9.20-22 through 22 in the context of procreative activity, however imperfect or distorted. Noah drank, Noah drank and disrobed in an effort to procreate. Ham intervened and succeeded. Specifically, if Ham's deed is understood as maternal incest, it becomes possible to explain Canaan's origin as the fruit of that union. This insight suddenly illuminates two aspects of the text left unanswered by paternal incest theorists, why Canaan is cursed and why Ham is repeatedly identified as the father of Canaan. Canaan is cursed because his origin was a vile, taboo act on the part of his father. Ham is repeatedly and apparently superfluously identified as the father of Canaan because the narrator wishes to signal the reader that this narrative explains how Ham became the father of Canaan. End quote. So, are you tracking with this here? Wow, yeah, that, I mean, that's completely different. So, if I can be uh, just real blatant, basically, the wine thing isn't Noah got real drunk and he was laying naked in his bed. It's the wine thing is saying they were about to have sex, Noah and his wife, and Ham barges in and has sex with his mom, and the result of that union is Canaan. And this was essentially a power grab. Exactly, which is the only explanation for why, A, you have this parenthetical verse which says at the beginning... By the way, of the three sons, 
Ham is the father of Canaan. Yeah, we're not told who the other ones are the father of. Yeah, it doesn't list any other grandkids. And then at the bottom, you have this list of curses upon Canaan. It actually makes perfect sense once you think about it. You just have to get over that it's using idioms. It's, it's not the way us modern Westerners would have told the story. But here's why I bring this up. What we see here is one of the, the very first story after this family gets off the ark being saved from the destruction of the earth and there to be the new restart people to rule the world. And a guy's own kid is so hungry for power that he rapes his own mom to take over the family bloodline. Now, track with me here for a sec. Where's the last story where someone had sex with someone else to take over the bloodline of the person who was supposed to be ruling the world? Genesis 6 with the the giants and the sons of... Exactly. We're supposed to read this and say, oh, I've seen this before. And there's a well-known characteristic of Hebrew literature which is called an inclusio. And it's a technique where you essentially bookend two ideas around another line of poem or story or something. What what is happening here is Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and this story in Genesis 9 are an inclusio around the flood story. What the flood was responding to was essentially this cosmic primordial power grab that people were fighting over who gets to rule this earth and that that hunger for power that thirst for power had so destroyed creation that there's this war going on between the divine realm and the human realm and all of creation is suffering for it to the point where god's willing to wipe them out you have this little hint about the nephilim that the flood was responding to and didn't quite work and then you, the next story on the other bookend, immediately following the flood, is another occurrence, not of sexual immorality like they broke some purity culture code. This is another attempt to seize power to become the ruler of the earth. And again, remember I said Genesis 3 through 11 is essentially a collection of stories that are together depicting the fall. We have to read all of these as pieces of the fall of what went wrong. And when I say fall, I mean the narrative depiction of the problem that the whole rest of the story is trying to solve. Give it wait, wait, wait. So how did having sex with his mom and having a child as the result of that union, how how did that grab power? So like, just think of, like, family hierarchy. I mean, it's it's patriarchy in ancient Near Eastern co- culture. So you have the patriarchal couple, Noah and his wife, and then you have three sons and their wives. As long as Noah's alive, Noah's at the top. Noah and his wife are at the top of this food chain. They are the kings and queens, and these sons are essentially the princes, right, in that language. To sleep with his mom was to literally, and in the story, it seems like this is what happened. Somehow Noah got drunk. The, the wine thing isn't necessarily about Noah getting drunk. It's associating Noah's preparing to have sex with his wife. That's the intention. And somehow Ham, 
swoops in and inserts himself into the, what into his father's place and has sex with his own mother in place of his father and bears a child by her. That child is now his and a part of the bloodline of the family. Does that make sense? His, yeah. his mom's the queen and he just had a son by the queen, but it's not Noah's. It's his. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Which is why Canaan gets cursed immediately by Noah. So the story is essentially Noah gets prepared to have sex with his wife. It, I guess maybe falls asleep. Doesn't really fill out this information. Ham steps in there. But the whole point is to say that Shem and Japheth honor their, their mother by refusing to look on this thing and essentially refuse to participate. And Ham is this horrible dude who literally goes, does this event, sleeps with his mom in order to get her pregnant, and then goes and brags about it to his brothers to say, I just took over. Like that's the point. It's a threat. It's a it's an attack to say I just took over oh, Dad's okay. spot. Yeah. Okay. So I see. I see now. This is like one more piece of the fall, essentially, where somebody tries to grab power for themselves, and there's this theme even that we're starting to see where it often comes by way of sex. Yeah, and specifically, I think that's partly a, a cultural remnant, but it's actually something we still see in in pretty modern history is that one of the most insidious ways to take over power within a community within a family or a culture is is actually through sex and through rape and to insert one's bloodline to actually decimate a people group by taking it over we would say genetically through the heritage but the issue here isn't necessarily the technique. The issue is the the motivation. Mm. So what we have is two separate stories which are surrounding the biggest story, the most central story in this whole fall saga, and it's framing the flood story as saying the major problem which the flood was trying to deal with is a desperate thirst for power. And it didn't work. And therefore, since plan B, the flood, failed, a couple chapters later in Genesis 11, God has to enact a plan C because the thirst for power is still alive and well. The flood did nothing to eliminate that particular kind of evil from creation. And so here's this is the second string that I wanted to, to tease out and then bring back together. The first piece is that the opening chapters of the Bible are framing a kind of mythological foundation that we have to read the whole rest of the story through, which is that God is trying to find a people to hold great power that can actually rule the world in his stead. That's thread one. That's the story that gets run out through Israel, through Jesus, and then into the church. Thread two is that a part of what is wrong with this world in the first place, one of the most insidious issues with creation that is plaguing creation that God is trying to remedy, is that everyone here is thirsty for power. And that that thirst for power is so 
insipid that people are willing to do the most egregious things to one another, even to their own mothers, in order to try to get to the top of the food chain. So what you have is two threads woven together in the, the opening chapters of the Bible to say we need somebody to be able to hold power to fix what is broken, and everything is broken because everybody wants to be in power. And those two threads get wrapped around each other that are the backdrop for the entire biblical story and are the logic behind almost every single thing that Jesus does and says. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so where, where is this going next? So these two threads, they weave a tension. The Old Testament isn't offering answers to this tension. It's asking the question again and again and again. When we open our Bibles to the book of Matthew in the New Testament, the first thing we read is an assertion that Jesus born in lowly Nazareth, a powerless migrant who was crucified as a false king, was also exalted to being king of the universe. And that somehow in the person of this Jesus is the key, the solution to that entire tension about power. This is uh, part one of this series. Come on back for some more. And a good way to do that is to subscribe to this show. You can do that in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It is really helpful because if you subscribe, that helps more people find this show, which would be really cool. The music on this episode has been produced by Kale Haugen. Go check him out online. And we'll see you guys next week. Peace. Peace.